Greet you all in Jesus' name this morning. It's a real blessing to be here again. I uh, was especially blessed with the Sunday school and the devotional and the way that it fits in to the message that I prepared this morning. So for a sermon this morning, turn with me to the book of Jude. One of the shortest books in the Bible. I like to read Jude verses 1 through 13. I probably should read the whole chapter, but I think I'll just read to verse 13. <clears throat> Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained in this, to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once know, knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak e evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally, as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Well unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds that are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So that's quite a mouthful from Jude, um, and I'm not planning to necessarily look at all of that, but I want to zero in this morning on verse 3, where Jude says, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. The title of the message would be Contending for the Faith. Now before I get into that, I'd like to look at a few of the, the uh, phrases that he uses here in verse 3. First of all, he says, he says, uh, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. What does he mean by the common salvation? The scriptures often use the word common to mean 
um, something that is unholy or something that is impure. But here, it's not that way. The word common here is the Greek word koinos, which is the root word of the word that we are familiar with, koinonia, which means fellowship or communion and is is used um, for the word church, is the word koinonia. So we could say that Jude is saying that he is writing unto you of a shared salvation. It's something that all of us share together. And other, other translations would use that term, a salvation we share. Salvation means to be rescued. It means safety. Salvage is a word that is closely related to salvation. We know what something is that is salvaged. Something that is salvaged is rescued from the rubble or rescued from the trash heap. It's restored to its original condition. It's, it's returned back to new again. So as Christians, we share this common restoration. We have been, we have all been on rusting and on the trash heap, if you please, but we have been rescued and restored by Jesus. And any value that you or I have is because Jesus has restored us. We find common ground in the fact that all of us have been sinners. We are all saved. We are all restored again. That's something for us to think about when we are tempted to think that we are above our brothers and sisters or to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. All of us come from the same place. We have all been lost. There is nothing that we have that Jesus did not give to each of us. It's salvation. It's rescue. It's safety. We've been salvaged. And then Jude uses the phrase, the faith. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort ye that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, the definition that I would give to faith is a persuasion and conviction of the truth which produces action and a way of living. It's a belief, but it's a belief that works out in our lives. It's a conviction of, of truth. And we live upon that conviction. We act on that conviction. So it, it's visible and seen in our lives. And this phrase is used a number of times in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, the, in the book of Acts. It's used. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. And Jude uses it here. There was, I don't think there was ever any question in the apostles' minds, in the writers of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, in their minds, what they meant by the faith. The faith is believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That's what they had in mind by the faith. There, there really is only one faith. There is only the faith. There is not other faiths. Now, we, we use that term today. There's other religions and other faiths. But there is only one true faith. And that is believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The apostles understood that all humanity pivots on Jesus Christ. Everybody who encounters Jesus must make a decision about Jesus Either they will accept Him and say that He is the Son of God and that He is the truth and make Him Lord of their lives or they will reject Him and say that He is not the Son of God 
and that he does not need to be Lord of their lives and they won't listen to him and follow him and believe him. It was that way while Jesus was here on this earth. Jesus was that by his very nature and by his very person and by the claims that he made and the works that he did. He was that kind of a person. When a person encountered Jesus, he had to choose whether he was going to accept Jesus as the Son of God or whether he was going to reject him and say this, this man is just a man and he, he's nothing. And especially when Jesus, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, there was without a shadow of a doubt in the apostles' mind that this was the Son of God. Jesus' own words, he said in Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36, he said, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. But he did not come necessarily. He, he, was, he is still a divisive figure. Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I, am not, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I, came, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Those are kind of shocking words. And sometimes we don't really know what to do with what Jesus is saying there because the gospel is a gospel of peace and restoration. We understand that. But I believe what Jesus is saying there that He is the great dividing line between all humanity. There's two vastly different camps of people in this world. Either you are in one or in the other. We heard about that in the, in the devotional this morning. There are two kingdoms. There are two camps. Either you are in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, believing in Him, accepting Him as the Son of God, and following Him, or you are rejecting Him, and you are in one or the other. So Jesus is, is saying by His words that He is that great dividing line of humanity. And I'm glad this morning that I have the confidence that I'm speaking to a group of people who have believe who believe in the faith they believe that jesus christ is the son of god that he's the redeemer of mankind they've been washed from their sins and it is only through the merits of his sinless blood we believe that we can be restored to god we also believe that jesus is the head of the church and and that he is lord of our lives and we are committed to following him and to obeying him and i'm glad to have the understanding that all of you believe that, Jesus, that this faith that we're talking about is not just a theological faith. It's not just a belief in my mind. It's more than judicial or forensic faith. It's, it's not just something that happened in God's courtroom somewhere, but it's something real in our lives. It continues to happen. It's a faith that is a practical faith that works. It's a faith... The faith embraces the teachings of Jesus. It, it uh, is willing to follow what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. It is obedient to the commandments of the Scriptures and willing to live them out. It is a faith that is defined by the fruit that it produces. That's what we're talking about by the faith. It's a faith that creates culture and structure. In other words, it is a very visible way of life. And there could be a lot more said about that. But just 
just a summary there of what I think Jude is talking about when he says that he's writing to us to contend for the faith. And then he says, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, once, this faith that Jesus brought to this earth, he brought one time. It has been established once. It could be read um, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was delivered a single time unto the saints. That's what that means. And we have other scriptures that confirm this. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, he says this way, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ has suffered one time to bear the sins of many. It wasn't like the Old Testament where they offered sacrifices again and again and again, and they had to do it to keep their sins forgiven, to keep their sins covered. Jesus suffered one time at the end of the world. He gave his life one time. The faith was delivered once and for all. He is coming one more time. It says here in Hebrews, he's coming, he has come once to deliver the faith, and he's coming one more time to judge the world and to receive his church. Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I think that's, that's an important concept for us to have in our minds. We're not looking for another revelation. We have the faith have, has been delivered to us we have what we need. What has been given to us is enough. It is sufficient. We're not looking for another revelation. We are growing in the faith. We are continuing to be sanctified. We are continuing to contend for the faith. That's a constant battle and a part of our lives. But it's a faith that has been once delivered. And now we go to the phrase where Jude says that we should earnestly contend for this faith. To contend means to struggle for. It's, uh, it means to fight. It means to strive. The, the, def the English definition of the word contend is to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against difficulties. And one thing that I noticed when I looked up the word contend, it kind of caught my eye is that the Latin root of the word contend is uh, it's contender or something like that. I, I don't know if I pronounced it right, but, but it means to stretch thin. And that kind of caught my attention to think that, uh, I think that's a pretty accurate definition or a pretty accurate description of how I see the Christian life depicted in the Scriptures. 
God wants us to stretch our lives thin, to contend for the faith that has been delivered to us. Um, Paul uses both the analogy of a soldier and the analogy of an athlete in his writings. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. A soldier knows what it means to contend. If there's anybody that is familiar with what it means to contend, it is a soldier who's fighting in the army. He's in the battle. He's on the front lines. He's striving against the enemy. He forfeits the comforts of home for the sake of his country. He's living in a tent or a camp or whatever it might be. And he, his family is gone and he's laying his life on the line for the sake of another cause. He stretches his life thin. He risks his life for the sake of his country. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the, uh, the, uh, the analogy of an athlete. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. An athlete knows what it means to contend. He trains and disciplines his body for the contest. He restricts his diet. He eats what is healthy. He gets plenty of sleep. He works hard. He practices day in and day out. And he, he knows what his goal is. It, it is victory and, and it's nothing short of that. And so he's got to do what it takes. He's got to give it everything he's got. When the, when the time finally comes for the contest, he will fight to his last ounce of strength. He will give everything that he has to win. The athlete knows that victory will never come without a struggle. It will never come without a willingness to sacrifice and again, to stretch his life thin, to give his life for that cause, to give his body, to sacrifice himself to win the contest. Perhaps the most accurate antithesis of contending is complacency. Complacent Christianity is an oxymoron. It, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't go together. And, and we see that when we read the Scriptures, the New Testament, when we look at the Scriptures, there's a sense of urgency that comes out of the pages of the Scriptures. Jesus had that sense of urgency. He said in John, I think it's chapter 9, He said, I must work the work of Him that sent Me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. So there was a sense of urgency that he understood his time is limited. He only has so much time to do what God has asked for him to do. When we read this, this uh, chapter, this book of Job, it's, it's very easy to pick up that there's a sense of urgency about it. There's a struggle going on. There's something happening here. There's conflict. There's tension. 
The faith of the church is under attack by ungodly men. There's false teachers. There's men who are trying to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and they're, they're denying Jesus. Jews uses some very descriptive language to show what these men were like and he's not afraid to say it how it is. Filthy dreamers and brute beasts and spots in your feasts of charity, clouds without water, trees whose fruit withereth, raging waves of the sea, wandering stars. And shockingly, it seems like these were men in the church. In verse 12, it says that they were eating together. It says these are spots in your feasts of charity. So apparently they were eating together. They were not way out there somewhere in the world. What we would think of uh, would be a description of somebody like this. But these were men who were in the church actively uh, making tension and strife. And, and Jude says, we need to earnestly contend for the faith. Sometimes contending for the faith means getting in the face of evil. It means calling sin sin and levi talked about in the sunday school how that in our world sin is becoming more open and more accepted all the time and there's there is an attitude of hostility toward anyone who dares to call sin sin especially the sin of homosexuality and the question for us is is there men today is there men and women today who, like the prophets of old, are willing to risk their lives to contend for the faith by proclaiming the truth in the face of evil? Are we going to let these things be, or are we willing to proclaim the truth? When I think about proclaiming the truth in the face of evil, there's, there's something that comes to my mind, and I'm sure that you, many of you have seen it, when you're driving west on 322 going across the Susquehanna River, just coming into Duncannon there by Clark's Ferry, Christian Aid Ministries put up this huge billboard way up above everything else. And it's, it's right there in that mini slime pit, if you want to call it that, where all of those um, evil places are there on Clark's Ferry, in Clark's Ferry, and and the sign says, "Lust drags you down to hell." Actually, they replaced the sign since, and now the sign says, "Jesus can free you from sin." But every time I drove across there and saw that sign, I couldn't help but think of the way the gospel is getting in. That that is a, a type of the gospel. That is the gospel getting right into the face of evil. And I think it's appropriate. And I think it was good. And I'm sure some people took offense to that sign when they drove through there and saw that. But they know it's the truth deep down in their hearts. By the way, the, the Christian Aid Ministries billboard ministry is an excellent way of contending for the faith. I was reading about it a little bit. They now have 917 messages on billboards and they're spread through all 50 states in the United States. There's an estimated 16 million viewers per day and they get an average of 328 calls per day from these billboards. That's contending for the faith. That's getting in the face of evil. 
That's something that we can get behind and, and be a part of. And there's many ways that we can, but that, that's just one that I thought of. Part of contending for the faith is taking stewardship of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith that we have been talking about, is the most amazing, it's the most glorious message that any person could ever hear. It's astounding and humbling to think about the fact that God has entrusted this message not to His angels, not even to His only Son, but right now He has entrusted that message to us, to His people. If we don't live it and proclaim it, the world's not going to hear it. I said not to His only Son. Of course, it was presented, it was given, it was delivered by His Son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus has put it into the hearts of His followers and now it's up to us. Jesus ascended to heaven and now it's up to us to be stewards of that message. It's been given to us for us to take care of. The message of spreading the gospel is in our hands. The message of contending for the faith, the, the responsibility of contending for the faith has been entrusted to us. Paul says in Romans 10, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And it's not just us preachers who are called to preach and proclaim the truth. Contending for the faith is something that every one of you is asked to do. And that means taking ownership of it. It means taking responsibility of the gospel, of being a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not deliver the faith to us so that we can sit back and relax because now I am saved and my salvation is taken care of and I'm, I've got my ticket to heaven and things are good. That's not why Jesus delivered the faith to us. We are given the responsibility to be stewards of the faith. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, he says, he mentions that he has been, he has been made a steward of the gospel according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Jesus has committed to our trust as his followers the message of his gospel, the message of the faith. And He wants us to contend for it, to strive for it, to proclaim it. In the parable of the talents, the Master took His money and He committed it to the trust of each one of His servants. Two of those servants took their responsibility seriously. They took what was given to them. They understood what their Master wanted from them. They invested that money they spent time and energy and effort. They worked hard. They stretched their lives thin. It was a sacrifice for them. But in the end, they doubled what had been given to them. And their master rewarded them for that. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the third servant, he decided he's not going to lose any sleep over this money. He understood that it was valuable. And so he took it and he buried it and he kept it safe. He preserved it 
And when his master came back, he said, here I have, I have, I'm returning what you have entrusted to my care and I have kept it. It's safe. Here it is. The master said, you wicked and slothful servant. He said, you knew in my own words, you knew what I wanted, what I required of you to do with this money, but you didn't do it. He said, he took the money and was given to some to one of the other servants and he was thrown into condemnation. He was judged for that. If we don't take our responsibility of being stewards of the gospel and being willing to contend for the faith, we are in danger of losing what has been given to us. I believe it's that serious Part of contending for the faith is defending the faith. Peter says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. He says, Do it with meekness and fear. I think that means that we should be able to explain the foundational doctrines and the principles of Christianity that we live by and that we adhere to. Why do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? How is Jesus the only atonement for sin? Is, is the resurrection real? Can you, you know, do we believe these things? Do we believe them and are we able to make a compelling case for them? I think it means that we should be able to articulate why we live out Christianity the way that we do. We should be able to tell why we are non-resistant, why we believe the church is a brotherhood of believers, why our sisters have their heads veiled. Why do we do the things that we do? Can we explain that? If somebody comes to you and asks you those things, are you able to make a case for that? Are you able to explain that? We should be able to make a reasonable and compelling case for what we believe. Not that we're trained theologians or um, schooled in those kinds of things necessarily. We're not. We're common people. And yet, we can understand the message of the gospel. We can understand why we do the things that we do and we need to understand them. We need to be familiar with the Scriptures. One of the things that is outstanding when we read the accounts of the Anabaptists, when they were brought before the Catholics and the Protestants and they were questioned and they were interrogated for the things that they believed. They weren't learned men for the most part. They were common men. But one thing they did is that they knew the Scriptures. And you can read those discourses between uh, the magistrates and the Anabaptists in the martyr's mirror. And time and time and time again, they go to the Scriptures and they quote the Scriptures. That's a challenge to me. Are we familiar with the Scriptures? Can we explain why we do the things that we do? Part of defending the faith and contending for the faith, I believe, is embracing our worldview. We are Anabaptists. We have been given... Most of us here are Christians because the faith has been handed down to us from the preceding generations. And it has been given to us in a framework, in a context, in a structure, and that structure is Anabaptism. It's a tremendous gift. 
And we often underestimate the value of what has been given to us. The, the faith cannot be passed on without a framework, a culture, a setting in which it is lived out, in which it is visible. True Christianity always produces a culture that is radically different from surrounding society. And as I said, all of us or most of us have received the faith through the worldview of Anabaptism. And, and we need to strive to appreciate and value that framework and be willing to defend it. Not for culture's sake, but because it is consistent with Jesus' description of the way that his people should live. There's, and it's not a perfect framework. There is no structure. There is no framework. There is no culture that is perfect. It has its flaws. We understand that. But if Jesus remains the central focus, we can align more perfectly with him. We can adjust that framework to align more perfectly with Jesus Christ. And we need to. When it becomes dead and stagnant and we're locked in dead traditions, then we are not no longer contending for the faith because we are contending for a tradition. We need to contend for the faith and the central focus again of that faith is Jesus Christ and following Him. Sometimes we Anabaptists tend to be negative about some of the things we've practiced we practice that Jesus teaches. Uh, why, why do we need to be the only Christians with these strange restrictions such as sw not swearing oaths and non-resistance and being so radically different from the world? Um, we hear those questions and we struggle with those things sometimes. In, in Titus 2, Paul uses the phrase, and he's talking about the context is servants obeying their masters. He says, Obey your masters and, and be obedient and live a life of fidelity and morality and, and, and so on so that you may adorn the doctrine of God is what he says. And that's the context there, but we can apply that here as well. When we obey Jesus and follow him and are willing to take the radical things that he's commanded for us to do and live them in our lives, we have an opportunity to beautify and to garnish and to adorn the, the principles of the kingdom. We don't need to be apologetic for, di for being different and living in obedience. And I know I've said this before here. These are not strange restrictions. They're the glories of the kingdom of heaven. They're the principles, timeless principles of the kingdom of God, and they work. It has been proven through history through the, the testimony of people who have been willing to follow him, that these things work as strange and as radical as they may seem. They have stood the test of time. So embracing our worldview, defending our faith, is part of contending for the faith. And there's much more that could be said about that. Is contending for the faith the normal Christian experience? Should we expect to always be struggling? Isaac Watts in his hymn, he said, Must I be carried through the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I'd like to read a few verses in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And I'll read into chapter 12. This is at the end of the great list of the great uh, heroes of faith. But the writer of Hebrews continues here. He says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fill me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him who contended for the faith more than Jesus Christ. Consider him, it says, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? I think I'll stop there. The history of the true church of Jesus Christ from the apostles until now, is lined with men and women who were willing to contend for the faith. They were willing to stand. They were willing to give their lives. They were stoned, it says. They were imprisoned. They were in bonds. They endured mockings and scourgings. They were sawn asunder. They wandered in caves and in the mountains. They gave their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer says here that the world was not worthy of them. They had their eyes fixed on an other world, an eternal future. They were faithful because their eyes were focused there. They didn't belong here. They were standing. They were contending for a faith, the faith. And they had their eyes fixed on the prize that that faith would deliver an eternal future in heaven with their Savior, with Jesus. We don't ease or drift into the kingdom of God. We strive to enter in. Jesus says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. 
Um, another scripture says that the violent take it by forth. The king, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence until, until now, but the, um, the violent take it by force. I don't have that quite right there, but, but the, the message there is that there is a striving. There is a contending. You don't drift in and you don't drift through. You fight your way in and you strive and you contend. From the beginning to the end, we are in a battle. Contending for the faith is a daily part of life. We struggle against our own flesh. We're flesh and blood. We've got that old sinful nature that we deal with. And so that causes contention. And we understand that. That part of us that recoils against humility and service and sacrifice those things which Christianity is all about. Um, we must constantly defend and be on guard against false doctrine and deceptive ideas and teachings that are contrary to the Scriptures. Like what was happening here in the book of Jude. That's on a church level. That's on an individual level. The, the world is full of teaching and ideas that are contrary to the Scriptures and that are deceptive. So we must contend for the faith. We must defend against those things. We constantly face the pressures of the world and the influence of living in a society that is becoming more ungodly all the time. And most of all, and I think this is important for us to remember, we are contending with the devil. He is a mastermind of deception. He's the father of lies. He is behind all of these things. He wants to destroy your faith and he wants to destroy the church. And I really appreciate Brother Kinley's message last Sunday and I'm kind of building off of that right here. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what we're up against. We have an enemy. He's real. That's why we must contend for the faith. Just as a lion seeks and stalks his prey for the next meal, so the devil is preying upon men. Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. <clears throat> One of the things that Brother Kinley stressed to us last Sunday is that the... Well, I'm going to leave that for a little bit later. Sometimes we may read Hebrews 11 and we, we read about the accounts of these men and women who gave their lives and who were persecuted and tortured and contending for the faith in a very literal way. And we wonder, uh, we find ourselves thinking that, you know, we're not really contending for the faith compared to what these people did. And Maybe when we find ourselves thinking that way, we need to get engaged in the kingdom of God. We need to get out in the face of evil. We need to start to um, be serious and be deliberate about contending for the faith. We do need to guard against entering a mode of ease and complacency. It's easy to do. But on, the, on kind of on the other side of that, then, is, is I, I would dare to say that most of us know what it means to contend for the faith. Being a true follower of Jesus Christ is never easy. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're in. It doesn't matter how good of a country you live in. 
Being a follower of Jesus Christ is never easy. And every one of us is involved in contending for the faith in one way or another. We face battles personally. There's things that we deal with. There's things that you are dealing with that I am not dealing with. You mothers who are raising young children, perhaps your call to contend for the faith right now is to teach and to take care of your children and to put into their hearts the faith. And, and that, that is our call as fathers and mothers to meet the needs of our families. I thought about Brother Christ. I imagine he's listening this morning. Christ is laying in bed. He's weak. He's dying. And he probably doesn't think that he's doing too much for the kingdom of heaven. But I can assure you that Christ is contending for the faith while he's laying there in his bed. Because the devil brings temptations there. And, and there's, there's things that go on in his mind that he must work out and take care of. He's contending for the faith. He's holding on to the finish line. The thing that I was going to mention about Kinley's sermon last Sunday is that he emphasized the, the, the armor of God, putting on the armor of God collectively as a body of believers. Part of that, part of the way that we do that is running to help our brother or our sister when we see that they're struggling, when we see that they're fighting a battle. When they're in the heat of the battle. And then the responsibility also lies on us as individuals. When we are facing something in our lives that we're trying to work through, we're struggling. It's hard. If we want to experience the power of the brotherhood, we're going to need to share that. We're going to need to ask for help. It would be a tragedy if... There is a soldier on a battlefield who is part of an army or a regiment of hundreds of soldiers and he's in the heat of the battle and he's fighting by himself and all he has to do is call for reinforcements and call for help. Maybe his friends and his, his comrades are over behind the next hill and they don't know what's going on. But all he would have to do is call for help. But he doesn't. He fights on his own and he loses his life. That's a, that would be a tragedy. That can happen in the church. We need to open ourselves to help for help and ask for the... There, there's power. There is safety. There is security in the brotherhood. We don't need to contend for the faith on our own. And the other part of that is we sang the song, um, Will Your Anchor Hold? in the storms of life, the Hebrew writer tells us that we have an anchor that is steadfast and sure. Our faith is anchored on a solid rock. And so we're not contending on our own strength. We're contending on the basis that we are anchored on the rock. And that gives us confidence, gives us hope. Let's kneel for prayer.